Building a DEI strategy is a heavy lift. It demands deep work on the part of leadership that is then modeled across the organization. It demands vulnerability, change management, culture change. You know, like the really, really hard stuff. Now imagine engaging that work in a massive nonprofit, one that has been around and essential for decades and has a worldwide footprint. DEI work, our guest today uses JEDI, gender equality, diversity, and inclusion, is disruptive by its very nature. What does it look like to disrupt an organization whose systems are in its DNA over decades? And then around the world, when the work means one thing in Syria and another thing completely different in Kenya. And let's add another layer to this, just to be sure your head totally spins. In this legacy organization, women's equality has been central to the work, and for many years, it was a standalone unit. It can't remain standalone as you build out a DEI strategy, can it? We are talking about the International Rescue Committee, and today we are talking with the woman charged with leading this change, with driving this heavy and very complex lift. A woman with a seemingly crazy, impossible job. Turns out, it's not so impossible when you ask Sika Dajo to give it a go. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Sika Dajo is the Chief Gender, Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion Officer for the International Rescue Committee. We'll be calling it the IRC. The IRC responds to the world's worst humanitarian crises, helping to restore health, safety, education, and economic well-being and power to people devastated by conflict and disaster. The IRC is proud to fight for a world where women and girls have an equal chance to succeed. And in 2022, the IRC and its partners reached over 32.9 million people in countries affected by crisis. In her role, Sika is leading the development of the first IRC diversity, equality, and inclusion strategy, as well as the IRC leadership diversity goals related to gender identity, race, and nationality at all levels of the organization. Sika is committed to social justice and has over 17 years of experience assisting organizations in challenging and shifting structures that perpetuate inequality, as well as building inclusive cultures that value diversity, ensure equal outcomes for people of diverse backgrounds, social identities, and conditions. Prior to working at, to joining the IRC, Sika worked with NGOs and UN agencies on the design, implementation, and evaluation of gender, diversity, and social inclusion programs in emergency, in emerging and developing settings. Sika is a Benin native and is currently residing in Dakar, Senegal, with her family, and that's where she joins us from today. Sika, I'm delighted you're here. Thank you for having me, Joan, and what a powerful introduction. I'm feeling really humbled by your introduction. <laughs> Was anything untrue, Sika? No. <laughs> okay, so you can be humble and own it all at the same time. Absolutely. So 
Listening to myself during that open, I almost felt guilty taking your time. Holy smokes, what a big role you have in the IRC's ability to be all it needs to be for so many people around the world. But before we dive in, will you share with your viewers where, I know you're coming, you're joining us from Senegal, but a little bit about your life and family. I'm always really interested in what shapes someone who really is in many ways an activist for inclusion and equality. Yeah, Joan, uh, I really like to think about myself as a Black African woman, as a mother and wife, and as a native uh, of Benin, that is a country in West Africa. And I think all those are different aspects of my identity that have shaped the way I view the world and what is important for me and what is what drives me. But I think just reflecting on one of the key aspects that have shaped who I am today, it's really my mother, Antoinette. She's a feminist activist, and I have really taken my passion for social justice from her. Let's just imagine my mother was is a mother of seven children. And my father passed away when I was one, and I'm the last one. And she took care of all of us. Wow. All of us university graduated. And while doing that, she found one of the first women INGO in back in our country. So really centering, you know, solidarity and fight for equal justice, regardless of what is your actual condition, is something that I have been really inspired by my mother from her experience and the way she just drives to life. Yeah. Me is your is your mother still with us? Yes. Uh, absolutely. And does she still live in does she still live in your in Benin? She still lives in Benin. She's still president of a Living Life NGO and they are still working on program on gender based violence, immigrant worker support and so much more. Yeah. I'm sitting here thinking to myself, gee, should I be interviewing Sika or should I be interviewing your mother? She sounds like... You definitely her, but you need some French though. It sounds like the hard worker rock star apple has not fallen far from the hard worker rock star tree. Clearly you arrived... So now I'm going to just shift, and I think that was really, it's always useful context to me as what motivates people. As a parent, it certainly is always interesting to reflect on the kind of impact you have on your kids, right? And for those of you listening, just know that if you, as a nonprofit leader, if you have kids or kids in your life, they are watching, they are listening, they are modeling, and don't forget that for a moment. And I, I think that's a really important piece of information for you to just live with and really own. So when you come home from work, make sure you tell them a story about something that happened at the office that day that inspired you, right? And make sure that balances with, oh my gosh, did I have an overwhelming day at the office? So make sure that there's a healthy tension there. It's because Sika's story tells you that there's a lot of modeling going on. So now let's fast forward. 
from Sika, the last of seven kids raised by a single mom who started who started an NGO in her own country. And now let's fast forward to the IRC in 2019. Here you do, you arrive at the IRC with all of this experience. You've been on your own. You are now part of a massive enterprise and you find yourself on the gender equality team. And I believe you told me you are the only black woman on that team. So tell me, why did you join the IRC and this team and what impact did you think you could have? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, there is a really interesting story about what, how I joined the IRC, but I will tell you that later. But what really attracted me to that specific role at the IRC was to see that this is an organization that is not thinking about gender equality and justice in internal organization and in our program delivery as two separate things, right? So the gender equality unit at the IIC at that moment was mandated to drive gender equality for IIC staff, but also for IIC community, uh, okay. for our clients to the community that we serve, right? right. So, so internally so- and externally. Exactly. And I think it's unique to see organizations that take that approach deeply understanding that whatever we do internally have a high influence on our ability to really deliver equality and justice outside. So that was one of the first things that have attracted me to the IC. And of course, IC mission that is really impact-driven organization as well with the global footprint. So what you achieve at the IC, you are able to amplify that to, let me do it again? Yes, go ahead. So whatever you achieve at the IC have really the potential to impact so much more people across the world. Absolutely. Do you think, I'm going to take this again too, after, so after Sika said that around the, across the world, just as a quick aside, Sika, do you feel like today, it's five years, five, six years later, do you think more organizations get that, that if you don't do the work inside, that you can't do the work in your programmatic work, you can't do the work externally? Do you think more people are aware of that today than they were when you started in 2019? Or you still think that's still a gap for people? That's still a gap for people because mostly we see organizations that put either strong focus on their internal equality work or strong focus on their programmatic work. That's one thing. The other thing is that in most of the organization, the team that lead on those two dimensions are often separated. Oh, I see. Right? Okay. So, yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting. My firm, because we run an online membership, a worldwide online membership site for board and staff leaders of small to mid-sized nonprofits, we knew that in order to create a real sense of belonging in an online community, we ourselves had to do work ourselves and have and been doing that along with creating policies and processes and systems and rubrics for content delivery and all of those kinds of things. But they, you're absolutely right. They are done by, I have a small team and you have an international organization. A little bit easier for me. So July, 2019. So about six, seven months before the global pandemic, right? 
that the World Health Organization estimates took three million people from us worldwide. A pandemic that illustrated deep health inequities, and then a racial reckoning that shook the United States with the murder of George Floyd. I wonder how did this impact the IRC and its philosophy? Because at the beginning of 2020, you were still in the gender equality unit. And I'm just wondering, what kind of impact did it have on the IRC? Yeah, absolutely. I think diversity and inclusion conversation and the recognition that those are important in addition to gender equality at the IRC didn't start uh, in summer 2020. We were working on a strategy that's called Strategy 100, and one of the ambitions was our diversity ambition. So it was recognized that is something that we need to work on. Even within the gender equality team, we're starting already having conversation around how do we take a less Western-centric approach yes. to driving feminist principle or gender equality work at the IC. But truly, the impact of summer 2020 was wake-up call and a recognition that now we need to stop talking about it and start acting, taking bold step and commitment. That makes perfect sense to me. So you're there for a year, a whole year. (laughs) And they say, okay, can you actually, you were in the gender equality unit, but now we think there needs to be an overriding strategy. How did your understanding, so... You know, if you'd been there for five years or four years or 10 years, you'd know a lot about the DNA of the IRC. But in some ways, you were at least new to the organization. And I wonder, how did you, so first of all, you obviously said yes. Did you feel like you knew enough about the sort of the DNA of this legacy organization to be able to shape the strategic design? Do you feel like being new was actually an asset or a liability? Oh, thank you. Actually, it was daunting, right? And yes. I recall I had many discussions with my husband about, do I take this or should I just let it go? Not because it was such a unique opportunity yeah. to shape a strategy that really could create impact for people who have been oppressed or marginalized for so long. And if you know me very well, I, I like challenges and risks. So I knew very well that well, I well, didn't know much of the organization. <laughs> I may just gently interrupt you and say, had you asked your mother whether she whether or not you should take that position, we all know what your mother would say. Exactly. So I didn't have to ask because I knew her, right? But I think uh, after reflecting back on it, being new was actually an asset, right? There was a steady learning curve to understand how the organization operated, who is who and who needs to be on board with what, what are the people that you need to converse or to engage with. But I think because I was not too built into the DNA of the organization, it actually gave me what is most important to succeed on this work, which is looking at the thing from a diff- completely different perspective and taking approach that disrupts the statute quo. I love that. I, I had actually, before, when I was drafting the discussion guide for this conversation, it had not really struck me how 
new to the IRC you were at the time that you took on this, this heavy lift. And I could imagine that it would be an asset in the sense of in big, big legacy organizations, the phrase, either that's not how we do it, or here's how we've always done it, can become a bit of a, a weight around your neck. And the mm-hmm. fact that you didn't actually come to the work with that probably gave you a more, your eyes were more open and you were generally more open to, to what disruption could look, could actually look like without any of the constraints of history. Absolutely. And I had a really good support from the top of the organization. So what I didn't know about the organization and how things work around I had my direct supervisor, the CEO of the organization, who was really taking me through what are the essential things that I need to work through to to succeed in the role. So, yes, I was new, but I did have a strong backup support from the highest level of the organization. I could go to any leadership board member and have conversation with them ask for advice and insight at any point of time. So that have really well complemented my completely new perspective and, uh, in this year. I'm so glad you raised that, Sika, because it actually goes back to what we were talking about with regard to your mom and the role she played mm-hmm. in your family and the tone that she set, right? She was a leader of your family. She was a leader of that NGO. And... And so, too, the CEO at the IRC, the leadership there is absolutely mission critical to the work that you were doing, giving you the the access, knowing that you had full support and buy-in. That's a huge piece of the puzzle. So very interesting. So tell me about the design and the process, right? Your charge was to create and bring together, bring gender equality into a larger strategy, if I'm understanding it properly. So tell our listeners sort of the design and the process. Yeah, thank you, John. I think that it was really, not really complex, but it's a really interesting moment and process. Because first of all, one of the organizational decisions was to bring together a team of deeply passionate people that have lived experience of discrimination and justice, but that have been in the IRC long enough to know where to start from, what are the key issues. So we actually created a team that I was leading of nine staff that come from different functional units, HR, safety and security, program background, and we had a mix of gender, identity, ethnicity, regional representation. So that was the inner team that was leading the process. And the way we went about it was, first, let's focus on listening to the organization, right? And because one of our core principles that we center was, first, we are going to center the voices that are the most marginalized in this organization around building this year strategy. We are going to take a bottom-up approach, right? Which is quite different from the top-down approach. And we are going to continuously challenge the status quo 
in the way that we build that strategy. So long story short, we started listening to the organization. We did countless, more than 100 of listening sessions across the organization. And we used that as a basis to develop our strategy. But not only that, we wanted beyond I feel, I hear, I experience this. We wanted to do a deeper work. So we carry out piece of what we call research and learning yeah. on specific topics. So about our organizational policy, what is good about them, what is wrong about them from a DEI perspective, about the way we, we deal with learning and training, about our internal comp, about our programs. So we really went deep for three months to do deep document review interview to come up with those learning that have actually shaped the strategy. And what was interesting about the way we decide on the priority, because you can imagine when you do that across 25,000 staff, you come up with massive fighting <laughs> and things to solve. And you are tempted to solve everything at the same time. So we went through a really rigorous prioritization process that started by region. So we went to each region and we presented our findings. And we did that in a way that where dialogue between staff and leader and people could vote actually for their priorities. Wow. Right. So we did some regional voting. And in that those regional voting, the regional director voice has the same weight as a caseworker or a frontline worker in Kakuma. So we had this first level of prioritization. And then with that, we bring it into a global space and forum with the leadership board members and everybody. And we went through another round of discussion and prioritization using voting system. So we use a process that actually equalizes the voices in the room, balance the power dynamic because we use anonymous tool of contribution, multimeter, thought extent. So imagine people, any staff could react or disagree with whatever an LB member has said without even knowing that it was an LB member who said that, right? So that was the power of really shifting power in the process. And finally, we landed on a core set of priority, but with the philosophy that we do understand that diversity and inclusion mean different things in different contexts. And that what is critical in Afghanistan to improve equality and justice might not be the same thing that is important in Wichita, right? So understanding idea strategy from this is a global, this is our global vision, this is the direction of travel. But how we get there will be defined and shaped from one context to another. So the implementation plan will look a little bit different from Asia to West Africa or Latin America or Europe, right? So that really let's define a global vision, but let's make sure that we have a localized and contextualized way to implement that vision. So my head's exploding a little bit, so I'm going to try to put the top back on my head. But so are you saying, Sika, that you had a set of core priorities. So I, I, what I heard a bunch of things, right? I heard democratizing voices, right? So whether you, regardless of your level or role at IRC, your voice had equal weight as a vote. And that there were, at the end, a core set of priorities. And those priorities were 
general enough that those priorities made sense in each region, but needed to be customized in a certain way. So they, they were shared across the IRC and the countries that you work in, but then the sort of the execution of that, of those priorities would be customized based on the unique needs of each location. Is that what I heard? Exactly. Because there is no way we go to a nitty-gritty implementation plan for an organization the size of the IC that will respond to everybody needs or every contest need. I'm struck by, sorry, I talked over you. I'm struck by the fact that you could even get to a core group of global priorities. That's very impressive. Can you give me an example of one of them that would make sense to folks? Yeah. So, for example, one of our goals is that we want our leadership to be diverse and representative of the community, of the places where we work and the community that we serve. Mm -hmm. That is broad and general enough. But a leadership that is representative of the places and community that we serve, what it will look like in Nigeria or in Nairobi is completely different from what it will look like in Bangladesh. And something else is we wanted, the other goal was we want our leadership to take responsibility of creating an inclusive organization culture where everybody feels safe, heard, respected in their whole diversity. I um, think everybody will align around that, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> so uh, just some very quick tactical questions. This team of eight or nine, during that period of time, were they also doing their day jobs? No. Oh, they were taken off of. They were taking off their day jobs, and this was their job for three months. It was nine months initially, six months, but extended to nine months. Okay, great, perfect. That's actually very helpful because I think people really like to understand process. Did you have the resources of an outside firm, or did you do this all in house? So we did most of this in house, and at a critical turning point, we felt the need to bring an outsource outsider into the mix to help us that have more experience on building or DEI strategy, gender strategy, just to shape. Because sometimes also when you are from within, your legitimacy and your authority is not as much as strong as you know someone coming from outside. So we wanted to do the blind. Yes, at some point we reach out to an amazing consultant that really helped shape the last mile of, of this DS strategy. And I would guess that the working group had a voice, right? That was not a top-down decision to bring in an outside consultant, was it? It was, what, do we, what, what has to be true in order for us to get this across the finish line? And a discussion that resulted in, we could really use some help? Exactly. So I just went to the CEO and, say, and tell her, at this point, I want to hire an external consultant to the FYS step. And she said, okay, whatever you need to get the work done. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you need to get it done. Yeah. There, those are probably music to most people's ears. And also, um, he had to see what was happening and what you were doing and the kind of conversations that were happening throughout his organization. And he had to mm -hmm. be feeling 
a, a sense of pride that there was real forward motion and that you were determined to actually bring this conversation to life in a real way. So it's really, it's really quite something. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. We are having a quite something conversation with Sika Dajo. <laughs> she is the Chief Gender Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion Officer for the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. And she has, over the last couple of years, been leading the development of the first IRC diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, as well as IRC leadership goals related to gender identity, race, and nationality at all levels of the organization. I said that so easily, didn't I? But when you actually, if you listen to it again, you'll realize that's almost a ridiculously impossible job. My next question for you, Sika, is you... Obviously, you joined the IRC on the gender equality team, and that gender mm -hmm. equality team, that gender equality was front and center. It was the leading, you were leading with gender equality work, right? How, mm -hmm. how did you navigate the historical prominence of gender equality without diminishing its prominence in your organization and making it a, a yes and? Yeah. Absolutely. So let me just be upfront. When you embrace a wider DEI approach, there is a high risk that you lose your focus on gender equality. Correct. There is a high risk, and we were not immune, as I see, we were not immune to that risk, right? And there is also a lot of different perspective around what is important, what is not important, or should we continue on gender equality? Should we call it just equality? Should we just call it DEI? Because different people care about different things when right. we're talking about equality and inclusion. But as organization, it's so critical for the eyes that regardless of the context that we are working on, women and girls remain one of the most marginalized population in, in, in community across the world. And that is compounded with other aspects of such as race, ethnicity, colonialism, etc. So right. when you do the math, you, you end up in a place where you still need to have a unique lens to the women and girls issue and people from diverse sexual identity as well. It was not without tension. Coming from the gender equality team, had some time with the gender equality work. And our work as organization was also centered on a commitment because in early 2019, our CEO made the commitment that as organization, we need to take a feminist approach to our work. Got it. Anchoring our DEI work around feminism have helped us not lose the focus on gender. Now, that said, it does not mean that as we start implementing the DEI strategy and 
what our gender equality and inclusion action plan. Because one of the really systematic ways that we found to not lose the focus on gender was to bring the DI work and the gender equality work together. Calling, asking ourselves to take an intersectional approach to our work. So we end up developing from the DI strategy using the same framework and learning from our gender equality action plan to develop what we call gender equality, diversity and inclusion action. That was the implementation strategy of our DEI work, but in a way that centers our commitment to gender equality. Now, while implementing, we see some back and forth, right? Uh, so because we are focusing, for example, in making sure that you have more people who come from the global south in leadership role because, again, of patriarchy and barrier that women face, you are more likely to find men from global south raising in leadership role right. than women, right? And that's, and let me be clear on that, that does not mean actually that the DEI work is creating additional gap. It's just that it's making more visible gender gap that we had before. Because we did the map, at some point we, we were seeing that, yes, we have people from global south raising leadership role, but there are really few women. Right. So what does it mean? Does it mean that we are making backtracking on gender because we are focusing on wider DEI? Then we went back and looked at our number. And actually, those women, the women from the global south, were not many at the big to start with <laughs> in leadership role. So it's just that the DEI work is making it more visible, which is a good thing. And now we have a good problem at hand because we have a more specific lens on where we need to put our effort so that we are doing diversity and but we are doing it in a, an intersectional way that makes sure that the gender aspect of diversity and inclusion is well taken care of. I loved everything that you said, and I was thinking about folks who are listening who run women's organizations or repro health organizations, that they've got to be grappling with this same this same, and tension is really the wrong word, but this is the same challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Is how do yeah. I, how am I intersectional in my diversity work and center a particular community, if you will? And what you, mm -hmm. and I, I think the big takeaway from what you just said for me is we want you to do this work, Sika, and we want you to take a the feminist lens and drop it on everything, right? A feminist approach to the work which I've, I'm it's very interesting and not something I'd actually really grappled with before, but it makes so much sense. So when you started, just one, actually another tactical question, did you come to this and say, we're going to call it Jedi, gender equality, diversity and inclusion, or was what it was called something that became like a thing? <laughs> so we had, just imagine, we had at some point, we had the DA team, and we have the gender equality team, right? Right. And then we have a DA strategy and a gender action plan that was coming to an end. So how do we move from a DA strategy to an action plan that cares, carries our DA goal and center gender? 
So we have multiple iteration and discussion and we landed as organization, okay, this will be a gender equality, diversity and inclusion. Of course, folks that are, were very attached to DEI were like, oh, nights have become gender equality, diversity and inclusion. Does it mean that we are actually putting more priority on gender equality than other dimension of diversity and inclusion? And that's where you need to bring the organization together, understanding that without an intersectional lens, you are not getting anywhere. Um, is there still a gender equality team or have they merged together? No, there is no more gender equality team. There is no more DEI team. We have one single gender equality, diversity, and inclusion team. This is, we're talking to Sika Dajo, the superhero of diversity work here. Maybe you actually spoke to this, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to add anything you wanted. That the JEDI framework, which is gender equality, diversity, inclusion, cuts across organizational culture, external relations, and program commitment. And I wanted to ask you why you chose that kind of approach. What was the thinking there? So we end up in a place where we need to look at this holistically. Yes. Taken from the principle that ultimately what we are doing internally at the, inside the IC is to make us to bring us in a place where we are able to deliver better quality of services to our clients. So doing the internal equity work without translating that in equity work and social justice work for the community we work with would have been an incomplete work. And remember, we had also the legacy of the anti gender equality work that were looking at those two folds as well. <laughs> yep, yep. So now this one team, so the working group went back to their day jobs. How many folks at the IRC are dedicated to JEDI work? Or is, And so I, I asked that question, recognizing that part of what you're trying to do is embed it into the DNA of the IRC writ large, mm -hmm. right? But how big is the actual team itself that act that in fact focuses on the implementation of the strategy and the evaluation of its success. How many folks are we talking about here? So centrally, when I say centrally, those who work at HQ and regional level, dedicated, we are more than 20 staff. Okay, more than 20. And uh, in many of our 50 countries where we operate across the world, they do have their dedicated, some, many of them have dedicated staff as well. So if you want to count all of that, we are a bit far in terms of number compared to the, the organization, but that's also because we are not doing only internal organization culture DA work. Yes. So we have a whole team that is just dedicated to programmatic work, right? So how we influence and, and, and deliver equitable and transformative programs, for example. It, it, it actually feels... There's a level of complexity in every direction I look about the work that you do, Sika. And I'm thinking about if I have someone who is focused on DEI in one of the regions, do they have some sort of, the old-fashioned word would be, do they have some sort of dotted line to the JEDI team, the global JEDI team? Is that how that works? Exactly. So we have regional JEDI director that all report directly to me and 
to the leadership, to the regional leadership. So they are sitting in the different region, like in Senegal, in Switzerland, in, <laughs> in Myanmar, and all other places in Mexico. They are sitting around the world, but we form one team. And it's powerful because we can learn from each other. We can co-create together and we can take learning from different regions to inform our global practices. Because one ways of working that was this critical to the Jedi work is to truly take a decolonial approach to the Jedi work. So it does make sense for me sitting in my office with just HQ functional leader and say, okay, this is the, how we shape this policy. I want the way we shape this policy to come from practices that have proven being effective and impactful in the different contexts that we work with so that whatever we decide globally will make sense and will be effective. Perfect. Good segue to my next question. How have you embedded metrics, success, and evaluation to, uh, into the, in, in regular language? How do you know you're making progress? Okay, good. So our strategy and our Jedi action plan, beyond object, objectives, we have milestone. And we have metrics. So in other words, we have indicators. And we built in an accountability mechanism that usually called a RACI. So for each of the core milestones, we have a metrics. We have identified leaders that are supposed to make it happen and yep. to be held accountable for it. And every quarter, we do a review of progress against IGDI action plan our milestone and our matrix, and it's, you know, it's publicly available. Most of the data there are publicly available because they are included in the global quarterly review of performance of the organization, right? So this is available. And then every year we, we go through the annual report and assessment of growth. It is it is really impressive to listen to you tell this to tell the story about the design and the process. How do you feel about, I have two questions. One is, how are you, first of all, I would think you're very tired. I'd be very, I'm tired listening to you, Sika. <laughs> um, Happy to be with you, so I'm not tired. <laughs> yeah, so I can tell that you're not tired, that you actually find this work very fueling and motivating. And what continues to motivate you in this work at the IRC? Yeah, I think many things, but most importantly is the day-to-day changes that happen yeah. in the way people experience our organization, mm-hmm. but also yeah. in the way people experience our programs. It's really hearing the testimony of our colleague about okay, how the DEI work have created concrete change to them in their life, in their experience of the organization. That actually fueled me. The other thing that really fueled me is the passion and energy and commitment that you see across the organization. We haven't figured that out. We can't solve it in five years or in 10 years, but that there is true commitment. And even if we don't know how to get there, we are committed to get there. So seeing leaders, every single project that they are carrying, without me knowing about this project even exists, reaching out to the JDA team and say, oh, we are doing this and we want a 
The Jedi tend to have a look at it and make sure that we have a strong Jedi lens. That's some of the things that's really for me because I can see commitment and passion in, in Egypt. And also just knowing that in the program work of the IRC, how rewarding it is to know that you're having, that your work has had an impact on people you will never meet. That's so powerful to just consider that, that not only have you, have has the IRC and its leadership given a gift to the team at the IRC, but that its work is exponentially more impactful because of the work that it is doing internally. It's really a very, I've been joking about how complex it is, but it's a very inspiring story. I wanted to end, Sika, with one last question. So I think to myself, I think a lot about what listeners are thinking about when they're listening to our conversations while they're on the treadmill or driving to work or whatever they might be doing. And you have a team, you have resources, right? You have a CEO as an enormous footprint as a leader in this space, right? I wonder if that folks who are listening to us today, staff members of nonprofits of all shapes and sizes, board members mm -hmm. who provide oversight and thought partnership to nonprofits, both U.S. and international, are there a couple of lessons you'd like to share that feel mm -hmm. universal to anyone who's doing this work so that I don't have someone who listens and says, yeah, Sika had all the resources in the world to make this happen which by the way, I don't think many listeners are thinking that, are thinking I couldn't have enough resources to do this, right? But are there one or two listens you feel are might be universal to share with listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I can share a few. And I think the first one is when you want to do meaningful Jedi work or DA work, you need to be bold and patient. Bold in terms of deciding on where you want to go, be bold in your ambition, but be patient in the way that takes you to the destination. Let me just let me make sure that people heard that loud and clear. Bold and patient. Those things don't often go together, do they? But you have to. Right. Right. <laughs> you have to. So that's a complexity. You need to balance that. Have very bold, big goals, but be aware that it will take time to get there. It's one step at a time and you have to make incremental progress, keeping your eye on the ball all the time. The second thing that is critical is build ownership and buying across the organization. There is no magic that a single DA expert or a DA team will make across big, large organization, even if it's not big, large organization, without having support and buying from the functional leader, from those who are making hiring decisions, for those who are designing policy or implementing policies. So making sure that the critical leaders, people manager, understand the business case for gender equality, diversity, and inclusion, is so critical because the day-to-day -day experience of a staff or a client is not shaped by, is more shaped by their direct manager than it is shaped by the senior leadership of the organization. Correct. 
Yes. So those are great. And I'm just going to, I just play that back bold and patient in the work that, that my team has been doing. I think the phrase that gets used is you got, sometimes you have to slow down in order to go fast. Right. And then I heard build ownership and buy the support and buy-in from leadership and, and the critical leaders and the people managers. Right. I think that's really important. It's not just at the top because I, I may work somewhere where I have no access to the leader and my leader is a supervisor who has to actually also share that vision and have that buy-in. I think the last one that is most critical is that you need to drive this work leaving the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So you have to check yourself all the time when you are leading a programming project. Am I really doing this from a decolonial approach? Am I not replicating the same, you know, harmful power dynamic in a way that I am driving this work? Because it's not because it's gender work that it is immune from the the flaws of power system and oppression, right? So you need to keep yourself on check all the time. If not, you are easily driving the Jedi work in the same way that historically organization function, which is not where you want to get. Those are, those are indeed, Sika, thank you. Those are indeed universal. It does not matter the size, the shape, the sector. It does not matter. Bold and patient build ownership, buy-in from leaders as they are defined at the top and all through your organization, and then live the values of DEI as you do the work and be sure to hold yourself accountable to check yourself for implicit bias and all of those things that we carry with us every day. That last, the answer to that last question was worth the price of admission for my free podcast. I am so grateful to you for sharing the nooks and crannies of an extremely complex process and actually somehow or another making it seem both radically simple and joyful. And I am grateful to have met you and grateful to have had the opportunity to share you with folks who are listening today. So Sika, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, John. It was a great pleasure discussing with you. And really my last word will be, yes, you have been talking about Sika, but what Sika have been able to drive is because there is a strong team of committed people in the Jedi team and committed leader that is helping us driving this work. So it's not a one-man show, really. And so we leave this podcast today with enormous gratitude and respect and being inspired by Team Sika. Sika, thank you so much. Um, To everybody who's listening, thank you as always for the work that you do every day. Thank you for taking time out to engage in this conversation with us, to advance your own understanding and thinking uh, about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. It matters, and please take good care of yourself, and we shall see you next time. Take good care. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful, too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do 
to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.